And today's message is going to be centered on the Sabbath, and the Jewish word for Sabbath is Shabbat. Everybody say Shabbat. Shabbat. That was good. That had some meaning. I like that. So we're going to dig into the text in just a little bit, but we really need to give some context first so we understand what it is we're talking about. So what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is simply the day that we would call Saturday. And Saturday is, in fact, the seventh day of the week. It's actually the last day of the week. My wife and I uh, run our calendars very differently. She runs her calendar biblically. I have Monday as the first day of my week in my calendar, which is very wrong and vexes her greatly. But she's actually right in this regard. Saturday is the last day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week, which I think is a good way to view it, that for us, we are beginning our week with Jesus, which I like. But in Exodus chapter 20, this is on your outlines, God gives this command to the nation of Israel. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates." So God commanded Israel to use the Sabbath as a day of rest when they would do no work. I mean, you have to love it when your boss says, this is your instruction, do no work. Okay, boss, I can do that. The Sabbath, this is your first fill-in. This is something you need to know. The Sabbath was and is between God and Israel. Between God and Israel. And I want to show this to you. In Exodus 31, I'm reading from the, the New American Standard. Just I like the way it says this particular verse. This is on your outlines too. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel. You might want to underline Israel on your outline. Saying, You, underline you, shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between, and then underline, me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Continuing on, then underline, so the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate, underline celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. And then underline this, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was, and then underline, refreshed. So we're going to come back to some of those words, but but I hope you can see really clearly from that, starting out our discussion on the Sabbath, we need to understand that the Sabbath was something between Israel and God. He gave it to them specifically. And you're going to notice this as well, because in the New Testament, the Sabbath is not something we're ever told to observe in the New Testament. The church is never told to observe the Sabbath. The church generally celebrates on Sundays because that's the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. The church was also birthed in Jerusalem, so you had all these Christians, and if all these Christians showed up at the synagogue on Saturday, the Sabbath, it's not going to go well. That's a high-pressure, hostile environment. It's just not going to go well. It, you know, it would be like us showing up you know, at the mosque on Kingsway on their holy day and being like, we're here to do our Christian thing. That's cool, right? And it's, so it didn't really work on a Saturday, so they started meeting on a Sunday. And if you know your Bible, you know that nowhere in the New Testament 
Does anyone ever say the church shouldn't be meeting on Sunday or any other day? Even when Jesus writes seven letters to seven of the early churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he gives them warnings, he points out what they're doing wrong and right. He doesn't say to any of the churches, I have this against you, you have forsaken the Sabbath. Or I have this against you, you meet on Sunday. It's not a big deal at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us not to lose sight of what it's all about. This is on your outline. He wrote in Romans 14, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. The Apostle Paul is saying, he says, this is a gray area. He says, it's okay whatever day you have church on unless you have a specific personal conviction about it then you need to be honorable and honoring to that conviction because you have that conviction. But the fact that you have that conviction doesn't mean you get to put it on everybody else. So we still have, even today, we have entire Christian movements and churches that meet on Saturday because that, they believe, is the Sabbath. And that's simply the result of one person having that conviction and then deciding that that conviction should apply to everybody, even though the Apostle Paul says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul says, that's fine. It's, it's an issue for you, but don't put it on everybody else. He also says in Colossians 2, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So he says, it's all about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all, all of the legal obligations of the Sabbath. He took care of all of that for us. We're under no obligation other than being obligated to Jesus Christ. He's taking care of the legal side of the Sabbath for you and I. Hebrews 4 is all about that. And while we're free from any obligation to the Sabbath, there is a reason that God imposed the Sabbath on creation on the seventh day. Quite simply, we need it. We need it. We are wired, built, created to need a weekly day of rest for our physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And we would be wise to take note of God's design and recognize our need for a Sabbath and accept his invitation because it is an invitation, not an obligation, to enter into a weekly time of rest. So what's the purpose of the Sabbath? What's permissible? We're going to talk about this some more today. According to Jesus and the Bible, the Sabbath is for, you can write this down, firstly, rest and refreshment. It's for rest and refreshment. We saw God already say the purpose is to, to do no work, and, and the real instruction from God was to do no work for profit. So it wasn't no work. It wasn't like if your neighbor needs help because their house is burning down, you can say, well, I can't do any work. The principle was no work for profit. It was if you have a job, you need a day when you don't do your job every week. That was the principle. Secondly, it was for worship and celebration. We underlined the word celebration uh, in that second passage from Exodus on your outlines. It's for worship and celebration. Thirdly, it's for remembering Jesus as the creator. You can look it up later, but in Genesis 2-3, it reminds us that God rested on the seventh day because we needed it, creation needed it, and it's a day for us to stop and remember that he is the creator. And then finally, It's for godly service. We're going to see Jesus today performing literal godly service because he is God. But the principle is it's a day to do good as well. And that doesn't fall under work. I believe in the Sabbath because I believe if God says I need it, he's he's probably right. So for our, our family, our Sabbath is 
typically on a Friday. I have a weird weekly schedule. I, I work full days on Saturday and Sunday. So on Friday, and we homeschool, we typically take that as our Sabbath. And we, we have a few rules. They're not legalistic at all, but we're intentional about it. And if something has come up that's unavoidable and is going to conflict with that, we'll typically try and find another day that week to be our Sabbath. And this, this is just what we do. Our rules for the Sabbath are, are no job-related work. So, uh, you know, I, I fail at this miserably. But the goal is uh, no work emails, no work phone calls, try and stay off my phone as much as possible. Man, if we could cling to Jesus like we cling to our phones, man, we'd turn the world upside down. I'm telling you, you know, five minutes have passed. I just need to check in with Jesus. Just, just give me a minute. No, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. Thank you, Jesus. No, no. Are you praying? No, I'm listening. I'm here, I promise, you know, middle of lunch. Are you praying in the middle of lunch? No, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. So our rules are, are no, no job-related work. Uh, we spend the day together as a family. So whatever we're going to do, we try and do it together. We try and be together as a family. We always try and go somewhere. We always try and get out of our house so that we don't just fall into a, a mundane routine. We try and get out somewhere. For me, being out with my kids, hiking, just makes me grateful to God for what I have in my life. Makes me remember his creation uh, and worship him for it. And then secondly, we, we do stuff that we enjoy doing. We do stuff we enjoy doing. Sabbath is not a day to spend doing all the work that you hate and have put off all week. It's, it's not a great way to spend your Sabbath. That's, those are just our personal rules, so, so to speak. But my personal advice is that you need a Sabbath. You, you need a Sabbath. Uh, it's not a legalistic thing. It's a benefit. It's an invitation. It's God telling you, you need this. Trust me, I made you. You should listen to me. If your Sabbath is Sunday, then it's a great chance to do some godly service, worship with your family, and then spend the rest of the day resting. Be with family and friends you enjoy. That's a big one, right? I'm not, that's why I didn't just say be with family and friends. I said be with family and friends you enjoy. For some of you, being with family would be the most laborious thing you could do. Don't do it on your Sabbath, okay? Sabbath is for being with people you actually enjoy being with and that are refreshing to be around for you. We need this. We need it. So I highly, highly recommend it. But over the centuries, the Pharisees and religious leaders had decided that it was their job to define what the Lord meant by work. So, so what does he mean by work? So they added hundreds and hundreds of additional laws around the Sabbath and then began to treat the laws that they had come up with as equal to the law that God had given. For example, according to their laws, if you carried an item heavier than a fig, it was work. It was work. You could wash yourself on the Sabbath because that was deemed necessary, but the problem was they had to reverse that because if you washed yourself, some water might spill on the floor, and that would be like washing the floor, which would count as work. So you couldn't wash yourself, actually. It's just way, way too risky. So it got very, very distorted, very, very laborious. And that's the context we need as we head into the text today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 12. First book of the New Testament. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain 
and to eat. So they only really had roads between main cities, and, and their system of back roads was really the wide paths that farmers would put around their fields and maybe cutting through their fields, much like they do today. So if you wanted to get from one town to another small town that was close by, you'd really be walking across farmland using these paths that the farmers had built into their fields already. And it wasn't illegal. It wasn't trespassing. You were just passing by, and nobody was going to shoot you or anything. You were also allowed, even under the law, um, to take some food from the field while you were, while you were walking by. You weren't allowed to, to grab some and hoard it, but the idea is if you were hungry, you could take what you needed to eat right there. Our, our modern-day equivalent would be if you're walking through an apple orchard, you could grab an apple off the tree and eat it while you were walking through the orchard, but you couldn't store anything. That would be stealing. So that's what's taking place here. They're walking through this field. They're grabbing some grain. They're sort of grinding it and, and, and eating it as they walk. Verse 2, it says, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. One of their laws made doing this illegal as work because you would grab the grain and they would just sort of rub it in their hands to separate the husk from the wheat and then they'd eat the wheat. But that was threshing according to their laws. That was work, too much work, and you shouldn't be doing that. You're violating our laws. You're working on the Sabbath. And as crazy as this sounds, we still do very, very similar things today in Christianity. We do very similar things. You know, there's still communities of Christians and and entire churches that have added to what the Bible says and over time elevated those additions to the same level as Scripture. And now they're taught as Scripture. One of my generation's issues when this happened was issue of music in the church. Many of you have probably been touched by this as sort of in, in the early 90s, music really started changing in a lot of churches And there was this huge debate between um, an entire generation of you can't change the music because Jesus only sings hymns, you know? You're like, well, where is that in the Bible? I I don't need to check. I know it's there, somewhere in there in the original language or something, you know? It's in the book of First Hypotheticals. And uh, there's this whole discussion about this. And the whole discussion wasn't centered on what does the church need to look like? How do we bring the next generation into the church? How do you transition generations and, and honor everybody and love everybody? It was just, no, 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 we, we have a law, and it's as important as Scripture. And that's how we feel. And that, that was one of the issues that touched sort of my generation in the church. But all these weird things can come up, traditions, and, and they really flourish in, in churches and environments where people aren't actually reading their Bibles, or where people don't want to read their Bibles. When you have that environment, it's really easy for church leadership to come up and teach something wacky and crazy, and nobody's going to check their Bibles, and so they can just sort of get away with it. And that's why here at New Hope, we always do our best to cling to what the Bible actually says. And our hope and desire is that as we have our Bibles open, as we're going through it, that everything we're teaching, you're able to see right in front of you. So you actually know where it's coming from. That I'm not saying, okay, pull out your Bibles, have your outlines. Okay, put your Bibles away now. Let me share some thoughts that I have. Hopefully it's, this is what the Word of God says, and this is what it looks like in our lives. And that, that's our heart, and that's our goal in everything that we do. Crazy and tragic things can be done in the name of Jesus when you start adding to the Word of God, and people don't check for themselves whether or not it's true. And that's all of our responsibilities. The Apostle Paul in the Word of God admonishes us to check that what we're hearing and learning is actually truth. 
Every single one of us is responsible to know our Bibles for ourselves. Let's continue. Verse 3. It says, but he, Jesus, said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? You might want to underline David. He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So we're going to make a quick detour to talk about this story from the Old Testament that Jesus has just referred to. And you don't have to turn there, but it's in 1 Samuel 21. This is David, as in King David, as in David and Goliath. And he's fleeing from King Saul. He's been a musician and a warrior uh, in the court of King Saul. But Saul sort of has these flare-ups and hates David and wants to kill him. Then he calms down and says, come back. It's like a a really violent, dysfunctional relationship from Saul's side. You know, I'm going to kill you. No, no, come back. Please, please, I love you. Please come back, come back. And this sort of cycle repeats. And it reaches this breaking point, and David ends up fleeing for his life. And when he flees, he flees to the city called Nob. And Nob is a city basically made up of priests. A whole bunch of priests live there. And the Ark of the Covenant is there at this point in Israel's history being stored in the tabernacle. The the first temple hasn't even been built. They have this tent that functions as the temple and it's called the tabernacle. So David has actually already been anointed king of Israel. God has sent a prophet named Samuel and told Samuel, anoint David the king of Israel. Unsurprisingly, that doesn't go over real well with the guy who's presently king of Israel, Saul. And that's why he's after David. That's why he hates him. That's why he's trying to kill him. David is from the tribe of Judah, but only men from the tribe of Levi serve in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. So David can't really just walk into the tabernacle and and take anything that he wants. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. It says, now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? Everybody knows pretty much David is the most lethal warrior ever at this point. So when he shows up alone and there's nobody else around, you're like, can I help you? Please don't kill me. You know, that's sort of the scene. So David has to give a cover story, which I find really funny. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, don't let anyone know anything about the business on which I sent you or which I have commanded you. And I've directed my young men to such and such a place. So David's cover story is basically, um, I'm here on a top secret mission. I could tell you more, but I'd have to kill you. Uh, that's, That's really all I can tell you. The priest is just glad that David isn't there to kill him. David says in verse 3, Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. He's, He's starving, he's famished. And the priest answered David and said, There's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from woman. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So I'll break it down so you can understand it. In the temple, there's this bread called showbread. It's 12 loaves of bread, and each loaf represents one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can read about it in Leviticus 24. And every Sabbath, once a week, they take this bread that sits there in the temple, and they change it out for fresh bread. When they change it out, the old bread is essentially desanctified. It's decommissioned. Uh, It's still hallowed, but it's not sacred anymore when it gets replaced. Only people who are ceremonially pure, like the Levitical priests, were allowed to then eat that bread just for food. The bread that David is asking for is that retired, decommissioned, 
desacramented bread, that's showbread. It's supposed to go to someone who's ceremonially pure, and that's why the priest asks them basically, have you been with any woman in the past few days? Because that would affect whether or not they were ceremonially pure. And David says, no, give us the bread. The priest gives him the bread because he doesn't want to die. Verse 6, the priests gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So even though David gets this and they are ceremonially pure, he's not really supposed to have it. It's really supposed to go to the priests according to the procedures of the law. But David doing this allows God to make a point that even all the way back in the Old Testament, life is more holy than bread. David and his men needed food. It was a matter of sustenance, and that overruled the ceremonial niceties of the moment. And so Jesus uses this story to point out to the Pharisees that the Lord has always prioritized people and life and doing what is right in the spirit of what is right over ceremony and tradition. Jesus wants them to understand that they're not getting the spirit of the law at all. They're not getting the heart behind it. They look at it as rules, but they don't get the heart behind it. There's no heart in their obedience, just cold, dead religion. And Jesus knows that as he's reminding them about David, David is one of the rock stars in Israel's history. He knows that they're all thinking, yeah, but that was David. I mean, it's like King David. He's awesome. So maybe he broke a few rules, but it's okay because he's David. He's David. He's awesome. And Jesus is intentionally doing that because he's going to make a pretty emphatic statement about who he is compared to David in verses 6 and 8. But before we get there, Jesus says this in verse 5, back in Matthew 12. He says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Jesus points out, listen, you want to talk about people doing work? The priests are doing work every Sabbath. In fact, every morning and every evening during the week, a lamb would be sacrificed in the temple. But on the Sabbath, it was double that. It was two lambs in the morning and the evening. So in other words, they're doing twice as much work. So Jesus is pointing out, don't you understand that there's more important things going on on the Sabbath? Worship is more important than no work according to your rules. It's okay for the priests to do this because they're worshiping the Lord. They're honoring God, and that's more important. That's the heart of the Sabbath. So now part one of the knockout punch. Jesus is is saying, so you think it's okay and understandable that, that David broke the Sabbath, and it's okay that the priests break the Sabbath? Well, let me tell you why it's okay for me to break the Sabbath. Verse six, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I'm God. The temple is not greater than the one that it was built for, and it was built for me. They don't understand that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow that pointed to Jesus. It all points to him. He is the temple. Verse 7, he goes on and says, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Some of you might remember, this is the second time we've heard Jesus say this. He says this back in Matthew 9. It's a quote from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament where God was emphasizing that the law's morality is much more important than its ceremony. In other words, the heart of God's law is so much more important than any other aspect of it. When you forget and lose sight of God's heart, your walk becomes all about rules and it becomes all about legalism. And it's possible to get everything right while still having a very, very dark heart. 
And the Pharisees were demonstrating that because they forgot the heart behind God's laws. In Mark's gospel account of this same interaction, in Mark 2.27, it says, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing to man. It's supposed to refresh them, not for them to feel even more stressed out because they're so busy trying to keep all the rules. Write this down. Religion turns blessings into burdens. Religion turns blessings into burdens. God knew that the Israelites would never take a day off if he didn't tell them to because he understands that in the heart of man is this desire for money and stuff. And so he said, listen, you guys are just going to work yourselves crazy if I don't make you rest. So I'm going to make it a command. In fact, I'm going to make it punishable by death just so that you will make sure that you take a day to rest and you don't lose sight of what life is all about. I'm going to make you rest. It's an incredible blessing. He knew they needed it just like we need it. His desire was to bless them. And he desires to bless us and have us be rested and refreshed. But these religious leaders came in with their hundreds and hundreds of burdensome rules. You know what the result was? Everybody dreaded the Sabbath. Everybody dreaded the Sabbath. Because it was more work to rest properly than it was to just go to work on any other day. All they did on the Sabbath was say, man, I wish I could go to work today. It'd be so relaxing. It'd be awesome. You know, as they're walking and somebody would have to say, don't pace like that because those steps count and you don't want to, you know, take down your quota. Save them for a trip to the well or something. They turned a blessing into a burden and Jesus wanted everyone to know God's not okay with that. We can do the same thing so easily. I was thinking about this and we do this when our focus becomes more intense about the things that we're not supposed to do than the things that we should be doing when our focus becomes all about what God doesn't want us to do rather than why he gave the instruction in the first place. When we just look at at things like relationships and say, I'm not allowed to do this, I'm not allowed to do this, I'm not allowed to do this, rather than saying, well, what has God told you to do? He's given you a path and a plan to have health and have him at the center of your relationship, which you're really going to need, by the way. That's an amazing blessing. That's wisdom that you don't have. And God is giving it to you and I and saying, here's how you can have health in your meaningful relationships. But when our focus shifts to what we're not allowed to do, well, then suddenly we've moved into religion. We've forgotten the heart behind God's instructions. So how about you? Is your faith focused on what you're not allowed to do, what you can't do? Or is your faith focused on all the good things that God has called you to, that he desires to bless you with? You know, my wife and I are not together because we're against the same things. We didn't get together because we realized we hate the same stuff. It just doesn't work in any relationship where your common bond is things that you don't like. We're together because we love the same things in the most important areas of life. That's why we're together. And that's what a relationship is with the Lord. It's not about the fact that you hate the same things. It's about the fact that he loves you, you love him, and so you love the same things. You desire the same things. In school, were any of you ever given lines to write as punishment? Anybody ever given that? Back when it wasn't considered psychological torture, uh, you know, back when it was just discipline. So, so I, I, I got lines several times, hundreds and hundreds of lines. 
But, but I want to ask you if, you were, if you were given a poem as punishment by your English teacher and told you need to write this poem out a hundred times as punishment, how would you feel about that poem? How would you feel about it the next time you saw it? Would you be like, oh man, I'd forgotten what a wonderful poem this is? <laughs> you, you, you would see it and you'd be like, freaking Mr. Johnson, a hundred times. Unbelievable. You would hate that poem. Now, this is just my opinion here, but this is why I would encourage parents, don't ever make your kids write out Scripture as punishment. Think about it, because your kids then are being told that Scripture is a punishment rather than it's a treasure and it's life and it's wisdom. And when they read the verse that you make them write out, they may go, man, I'm so glad I was corrected in wisdom. Or they might go, oh, man. I really, really hate John 3.16. You don't know, but, but, but let me tell you how this plays out. In church history, we see the same thing. So the disciples come to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and they say, God, teach us how to pray. Jesus says, sure. I want to bless you. I want you to know how to pray. And he teaches them how to pray, and the Scripture says, he says, when you pray, you know, get alone with God in private and pray like this. Say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We all, we all know it. And over the course of church history, that, that just begins to be known as the Our Father. And then what happens as history passes is some very well-intentioned people begin to say, hey, you know, when you, when you mess up, this is how you can make up for it. You pray the Our Father a specific number of times, and that'll make up for it. And with very good intention, suddenly you've taken something that was meant to be a blessing. Hey, listen, when, you're, when your brain is stuck and you don't know how to pray, just go to this template. That was the heart of Jesus. Now, it's become a burden. And now when you think of it, you think of all the things you've done wrong. You think of how you can never make it up to God. And it becomes a burden, even though it was well-intentioned. And this is what was taking place on uh, the Sabbath with the Pharisees is they had taken something which was good and was a blessing and they had found a way to make it a burden. You need to know that Satan loves to pervert the good things of God. He loves to twist them. He loves to take God's blessings and get us to view them as a burden. Once he's done that, he's moved us toward religion. He's moved us toward religion and he's filling us with the deception that God is holding back from us the best things rather than trying to steer us away from destruction towards the good things and the best things. Whenever I find something to be a burden, I find that 99% of the time the issue is that I've stopped viewing it the way that God tells me to view it. Most obvious example, your kids. Sometimes you're like, oh man, what I do in having five kids? You know? And then you need, you need that reset. You get alone with God and you remember what God says about kids and why he gave you kids and what he's showing you through your children and what he's showing you about yourself, as horrible as it is. It's good. And you readjust your perspective. You readjust your perspective and then everything falls back into place. So always be aware that Satan's always trying to do that. He's always trying to distort the good things that God has put into your life and say, that's not a blessing, that's a burden. Serving, oh man, what a burden. No, no, what a blessing. Honoring God in your finances, what a burden. No, 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 what a blessing. Serving your spouse, oh no, what a blessing. Going to work every day, no, what a blessing. What a blessing. 
Now part two of the knockout punch. Jesus says to the Pharisees, verse eight, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this would have really pushed them over the edge because the Pharisees are saying, listen, I don't care who you are. We all need to bow before the holiness of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you don't understand. The Sabbath bows before my holiness. It bows before me. I'm Lord of everything, including the Sabbath. It's quite the comeback. In my defense, I'm God. That's why it's okay for me to eat on the Sabbath, you know. In my defense, I'm, I'm God. I invented the Sabbath, so, you know. Continues in verse 9. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. So, so we don't know how it's happening, if he's talking with them while he's walking, but they all end up in the synagogue together. Verse 10, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, just a deformed hand. And they asked him, they asked Jesus, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? that they might accuse him. So they are delighted that this situation has presented itself because there is a crowded synagogue, tons of witnesses. It was against their laws to heal on the Sabbath. Heaven forbid. But Jesus is there and they know, oh man, if there's one thing Jesus can't resist, it's healing a sick man. We got this guy. There's witnesses everywhere. If he heals him, we can drag him off to our high court, the Sanhedrin, and we can accuse him and maybe he could even be punished by death. Wouldn't that be fantastic? They don't give a rip about the man with the withered hand. They're so blinded by their closed-heartedness They're missing the obvious here, which is like, you're only excited to trap Jesus because you know he can and will heal this guy. Why aren't you stopping and going, maybe it's significant that we all know he can heal this guy. Maybe there's something there we should explore further. But I get why Jesus drove these guys crazy because he turned them into wily coyote. You know, every scheme they hatched just blew up in their faces. Just when they think they have Jesus cornered, He'll give them an answer that leaves them with no comeback. You know, it's, it's like they're, they're walking out on a plank on the edge of a cliff and they're, they're sawing it thinking that Jesus is going to fall and then they realize they're standing on the side of the plank that's going to fall into the valley. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. Then Jesus said to them in front of the audience, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay a hold of it and lift it out? Anybody? So he's saying, you're not going to wait till the Sabbath is over. Your, your animal might die before then. A wild animal might eat it. It might wander off and get lost, die from an injury. No, you're going to act right then to rescue your sheep, even though it's the Sabbath, right? The reason Jesus knows they would do that is because to lose a sheep would be a significant financial hit for anybody in their personal finances at this time. You know, it doesn't cost them anything to try and force their rules on, on this man with the withered hand. So they don't care about his situation. But Jesus is revealing their hypocrisy and saying, you won't even follow your own rules that you teach when it actually costs you something. When you have to take a financial hit to live in obedience to your own rules, suddenly you're you're the exception. Then Jesus goes on. He's just laying it on thick. And then he says, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus is explaining that it would actually be sin for him to do nothing. In James 4.17, it says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
That's what Jesus is saying. I can heal this guy. It'd be sin for me not to heal this man. And Jesus elevates the whole discussion from a legal problem to a moral problem. And when he takes it to a moral level, the whole argument falls apart for them. The Pharisees have no comeback. They're just silent in front of the crowd. You understand why inside they're just raging, they're seething because they've worked so hard to build themselves up to the place where people come to hear what they have to say and they're the authority on everything. And Jesus lays an argument out, they have no comeback. And everybody's looking at him. And in my head, I kind of imagine Jesus just lets it sit for like 30 seconds of super awkward silence. Spends five seconds looking each of them right in the eye. Mark 3, 5. Yeah, Mark 3, 5. You don't have to turn there. But it's the same story, and it tells us what happened next. It says, And when he had looked around at them with anger, this is Jesus, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, in Luke's account it says, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy And when he had looked around at them all, then we'll go back to Matthew 12, verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Are you starting to notice a a pattern when Jesus heals people? He tells the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, rise up. He tells Lazarus, come forth out of his grave. He tells the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And this is how Jesus works. There has to be a response to his words. There has to be a response to his invitation. Let me be clear on this. All the power is in Jesus. All the power is in Jesus. All of the miracle is being done by Jesus. That man is not going to be able to say later on, yeah, but you know, I stretched out my hand. In my credit, you know, I really played probably a 50% role in the process. I had to do this, you know, so I I really made it happen. He's not going to do that. Jesus is the one doing the whole miracle, but they still had to take the step of faith to respond to what Jesus is saying. And that's how salvation works as well. Jesus has done everything. He died for us. He rose from the dead. He's our victory. He is our miracle. He is our salvation, but we have to respond to his invitation. He calls everyone out the grave, but not everyone will leave their grave. He calls everyone to rise up and be healed, but not everyone will rise up. Calls everyone to stretch out their hand and be healed, but not everyone will stretch out their hand. Do you remember what Jesus said when people asked him what works they must do in order to be saved? In John 6, he said, this is the work of God. This is the work you have to do, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's the work you have to do. Believe in me. That's your part in this. All of the power is in Jesus, but you and I have to respond in faith to the words that he's speaking to us, to his word, uh, to the scriptures, which is Jesus speaking to us. So what's the reaction of the Pharisees to this man being healed? Luke six eleven it says, but they were filled with rage and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Verse 14 in Matthew 12, it says, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Mark 3.6 adds that the Pharisees plotted with the Herodians. And 
just to explain that while we're there, the Pharisees were a political religious party and so were the Herodians. The Pharisees were the back to the Bible, super conservative guys who made it their goal to follow all the Old Testament laws and get everybody else to do it. The Herodians were the super liberal Jewish people who basically said, look around you, we're ruled by the Romans, you might as well join the party. So they embraced Roman rule, they embraced the Greek language, they were culturally Jewish, not devoutly religiously Jewish, didn't follow the Old Testament rules, and these two groups hated each other, but they both hated Jesus even more than they hated each other. It's bizarre. It would be like pro-life and pro-choice groups coming together to fight a common enemy but they hated Jesus even more than they hated each other. And up to this point, Jesus has been primarily presenting the kingdom of God, the gospel, himself as Messiah, to the Jewish people, with a few exceptions. It's about the one-year mark in Jesus' ministry, but overall, the Jewish people have not received Jesus as their Messiah. They receive him as a great teacher, as a rabbi, as a miracle worker, but very few accept him as Savior, as Messiah, as God in the flesh. And it's clear that the Jewish leadership has rejected him. Uh, Small, just nuance of life here. When people plot to kill you, it's always a hint that they haven't really accepted you. That's how you know when you hear rumors that they're plotting your death. And most Bible scholars hold that it's around this time that a significant shift takes place in the ministry of Jesus. He begins focusing on the Gentiles more and more. We're going to see him start to do things like begin to teach in parables, which we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. John the Apostle summarized the whole situation in his gospel when he wrote, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In verse 15, Matthew 12, it says, But when Jesus knew it, when he knew that they were plotting to kill him, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. I I just love that. He's so awesome. He has no respect for their their piety and their unbiblical rules. Jesus' response to them objecting to him healing somebody on the Sabbath is he just heals everybody, just heals them all. Jesus, we don't think you should heal on the Sabbath. And I'll just heal them all. What are are you going to do about it? You know, I think the Pharisees are probably thinking, well, we're not going to pick a fight against the dozens of people that you just supernaturally healed. So we'll just leave this for another day. In verse 16, it says, he warned them, those he healed, not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, behold, my servant whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the, and you might want to underline, Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not here to start a political revolution. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. Just want to explain that the reed was used by shepherds to make a small musical instrument, and if the reed was cracked or worn, it was useless. Uh, A smoldering wick is useless for giving light, and so these two things represent people that the world looks at and says they're useless. And Isaiah is saying, listen, Jesus didn't come to crush those people. He didn't come to break them. He came with compassion to them to restore them and revive them. Continuing on, it says, Till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name, and you might want to underline again, Gentiles will trust, non-Jews will trust. That's the Father speaking of his son, Jesus. Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 42, and 
One of the things I love to do in the scriptures is in the New Testament, whenever something from the Old Testament is quoted, especially from a prophetic book like Isaiah or from the Psalms, it's always good to go and read the rest of it because there's usually more to the story than is just in that one quote. A great example is when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. And if you go read the rest of Psalm 22, it'll absolutely blow your mind. And so if you go and read the rest of Isaiah, 42 uh, this is speaking of Jesus prophetically it says this and I just want to read it to you it says he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So there's just two things this week that we want to think about. The first is just really practical. It's a Sabbath. And this is one of those messages where may not be moving you deeply emotionally, but, but I want to encourage you, a Sabbath is so good to build into your life. If you're single, it's good to build into your life now. If, if you're married without kids, build it into your life now. Don't, for some ludicrous reason, think that when you have kids, it'll be easier to get it together. You need to have it in there now and be willing to fight tooth and nail to protect it. And if you have kids, Find a way to build that into your family culture, a Sabbath. God has wired us to need it. We're not obligated to do it, but there is a blessing in it. There is a blessing in taking time to just be reminded of the goodness of God and to rest and realize, you know what? Taking a day to rest, to remember God, to remember the good things he's blessed us with is worth more than making more money. It really is. That's why God instituted it. And then the second thing just to ponder is is religion versus relationship. And just to ask yourself, which one do you have right now? Do you have religion or do you have relationship? Is your focus more on the things that you shouldn't be doing or more on the things that you should? Is your focus on the things you're not permitted to or the things that God has blessed you with and called you to do? It's good to stop and do that, to ask yourself, how am I viewing the things in my life that God says are a blessing? Am I viewing them as a burden or am I viewing them as a blessing? So let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Planning a Sabbath, working that out, that, that's a project you can do this week. But, but let's take this moment for some introspection and just think about the things which the Lord says are great blessings in our lives. Our marriages, our children, our work, our, our vocation, our relationship with Him. our finances, our time, our health, all of these things. And I just want us to ask each one of us within ourselves whether we're viewing those things as a burden or a blessing. When we look at all those things, is our focus on what we don't have or or what the Lord has blessed us with? You know, for some of us, we might be thinking, man, I could have so much more peace if I just had 
more of this in this area. And so often what we really just need is more of Jesus and a perspective change. I want to especially encourage the the men in this moment um, just to remember that we are called to serve. We're called to serve our spouses. We're called to serve our children. We're called to serve others. And the life that we're called to is is a life of service. And there's such deep reward in that if we're able to remember that it's a blessing. That God has asked us to represent his heart to our wives, to our children, to our co-workers. So let's just take a moment. Let's be still before the Lord. Let's ask him to reveal those things. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you that you care about us all the way down to the level of the rhythms of our life. You care that we get enough rest. You care that we don't lose sight of what life is all about. You care that we take time to enjoy the good things that you've put in our lives. To pause and reflect on on the blessing that is you. And Father, I pray for all of us right now that, that our heart would be unified on the fact that that's why we're even here right now. We're gathered in this place to remember that we are blessed to call you our God and our Father. We are blessed to call you our Savior. We are blessed that you've prepared good works for us to walk in before we were even born. We're blessed that you guide our steps. And as we trust in you, we won't slip. That even though we fall, your word says in Psalm 37, we're not cast down because your arm sustains us, God. We are so blessed. Would you just fill us with gratitude and thankfulness, Lord? We love you. We worship you.